Have you heard of Noelani Vila? Noelani is a PhD student who just studied a year abroad in the Netherlands at TU Delft. She did her undergraduate degree at the University of New Mexico, and she is now studying coastal engineering for tidal marsh restoration. I interviewed her for my water resources class project during my exchange in the Netherlands. In this episode, I ask Noelani about her experience in the Netherlands, from her education in Delft to water infrastructure and bikes. We talk about the equilibrium of systems and how it affects tidal marshes, and also how those things relate to New Mexico. So you said that you've been working on coastal engineering for tidal marsh restoration. So I wanted to start by asking you, what is coastal engineering? Yeah, coastal engineering is just anything related to shorelines and how tides. Um, so instead of focusing on discharge or yeah, river runoff, we're now looking at tides, how that affects shorelines, whether through like erosion or flood. Pretty large box. So for class, we actually ended up going to the sand engine to okay. see it, the sand motor. So I'm curious, do you have any thoughts about the sand engine and maybe like what its effects on the landscape are? Yeah, I'm not um, an expert in shoreline evolution or morphology, which is more of what that um, particular engineering project is focused on. So maybe for those who don't know what the sand engine is, um, basically it's a bunch of dredged sediments that they deposited onto the shorelines. And then the idea over time is that the waves will do the work, they say, and over time they'll get less shoreline erosion further down because you'll get these sediments depositing and kind of rebuilding. So it's trying to set a system into equilibrium. Um, there's a lot of questions about it though because it was dredged sediments. Uh, it was pretty experimental when it was done and implemented and it was an idea created out to you, Delph. So yeah, I don't know, what were your thoughts when you went to yeah, I thought the sand engine was really interesting, especially to see how when they make something that big that it actually started to create an ecosystem around the area and that it had more of a full-bodied effect than perhaps they anticipated. So I really enjoyed that part about it. So what was your area of focus for your Fulbright program? My research site for one of the chapters in my PhD um, is located in Washington State. And so that's how I kind of made this weird uh, jump from fluvial systems to coastal systems. Because Washington State is where you're from, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> basically in Washington State, it's a really large estuary, the Puget Sound. So tidal marshes can serve a dual purpose. The first purpose is, of course, habitat. And then the second purpose is flood, uh, flood reduction. So the idea is that if we can restore these systems over time, they trap sediments, and they kind of create this natural seawall that functions like a levee um, and it rises as the sea level rises. So we kind of get that nature-based solution protection. Um, and so I had to start using DELF3D, which is a hydrodynamic model that does really well in coastal systems. So, so setting like flood boundary conditions for tides works really well versus something like maybe HECRAS, which some listeners in this podcast might be more familiar with. Um, so that was kind of my motivation to apply for the Fulbright and then be at Delft because Delft 3D was obviously created in Delft. <laughs> um, and it was a joint project between a very large consulting firm here called Deltaris and TU Delft. So this is kind of where the expert knowledge is on this particular model and coastal modeling. So when I originally came here, I had this idea that I was gonna build a site-specific model for this one particular tidal marsh in uh, Washington State. But as my Fulbright kind of continued and I grew a little more as a researcher, we started to mix in a little bit more complex uh, ways of analyzing the systems. So we don't really know a whole lot about tidal marshes and how they function because 
it's a geomorphology problem, right? And it's very long timescales. So we can like go back in time and maybe look at aerial photography and try to understand like what do these natural systems progress like over time? Um, but we don't really have very good models to model the evolution and morphology of them. So my time here at the Fulbright was kind of focused on using machine learning approach to look at idealized tidal marsh systems and then try to understand, can we design a tidal marsh that's in equilibrium? So when the system's out of equilibrium, what does that mean? Like we end up with a mud flat, right? Because it's like too low, it's inundated too long during each tidal cycle. We, there's maybe too much erosion, so there's no vegetation establishing. And then also what happens is um, the channels will close, they'll fill with sediments, and then we'll just have like a bare mud flat. And so in terms of flood protection and habitat, that's not ideal. So we don't want systems like that. Um, what we want are systems in equilibrium. So we have a stabilized channel that serves as like fish habitat. And then the elevation of the ground next to the channel is some percentage higher than the tide, um, the high tide. And so that allows like vegetation establishment and then we get bird habitat. And that's when we can start to get the sediment trapping and get some of those like nature engineering flood benefits. Um, so we wanted to understand like if we can design a channel knowing some things about the boundary conditions. So tidal inundation, like tidal ranges, inundation times, um, sediment budgets. If we can design a perfect channel that will stay in equilibrium so that we can get those maximum benefits for habitat and then also for um, vegetation establishment. And so if you wanted to understand this through our like traditional kind of engineering approaches, right? Usually we have our design flows for like the river float folks, right? So we pick like the 50, 100, 500 year like flood intervals and we'll model those. Um, with coastal systems, we know what the tides look like. We can predict them for till the ends of the earth, <laughs> as long as nothing catastrophic happens. And so instead of just picking like a design flow and then saying, this is what a tidal marsh will look like, we decided to pick, um, various different combinations and then do the modeling for that to see um, like if we can find trends or patterns between like channel geometries like widths and depths or like drainage efficiencies of like tidal marsh areas to understand if that can help with guidelines for restoration. So some of that work is still going on. Yeah. So we still have to do a little bit more modeling and analysis, but I'm hoping that using a machine learning approach will, will lead to some insights. <laughs> so you mentioned that the tidal marsh being in equilibrium versus out of equilibrium, in which case you get the mud flat. Um, what allows the system to be in equilibrium and how does that system stay in equilibrium? Yeah, so it's a pretty delicate balance between sediment inputs. So like if we want these systems to deposit sediment and like build up higher elevations over time, the sediment needs to be there. So luckily for the case that I'm modeling, it's on a river delta. So we'll always be getting those like inputs of sediments from the watersheds, but for maybe more like open coastal systems, this might not be the case. And so this was kind of the idea of taking this machine learning approach is that we can, in a typical model, right, you have to set up new boundary conditions, then you have to run the model, then you have to look at the outputs of it. Using a machine learning approach, it can be like pretty adaptive. And so like we can very easily like adjust boundary conditions to represent all types of systems. Um, so that was the kind of idea around like doing this pretty heavy approach. And, and we don't like have a clear answer either, like of what causes these systems to shift in and out of equilibrium, especially because the time scales for them have been pretty long for natural tidal marshes, which are reference systems we have to study. Um, so yeah, maybe the results of this work might yield some empirical relationships that we can kind of start to tease apart and understand these a little better. So what does a natural tidal marsh look like? Yeah, depending on the age, but like the older kind of reference systems that we like, they have like multiple channels. So first, second, third order streams. 
They're like that. They have a bunch of these like branching networks, lots of vegetation, usually multiple outlet channels as well. So it's not usually just like one large tidal channel with braiding at the top. The ones in the Pacific Northwest, they have white salmon, juvenile salmon. Um, inside the tidal channels, you'll find a lot of other types of wildlife, like herring, hawks, um, birds. And then of course, like the intertidal creatures, they hang out there as well. So you, you're like crabs and shellfish. So when you say tidal marsh restoration, what exactly are you doing in terms of restoration? Are you helping to build the tidal marsh in the first place and let the flora and fauna automatically come in? Or is there kind of more of a planting efforts restoration? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a good question because it means a lot of different things for different people. <laughs> so here in the Netherlands, one thing they really like to do is have marsh systems in front of their large dikes. And the reason for that is because it reduces the impacts of waves um, on the dikes and they're hoping that it can like last a little longer and withstand some larger storms. In the Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, tidal marsh restoration means restoring ecosystem function. So it's not just like let's get this habitat here for like some flood benefits. It's about, especially in Washington state, it's about creating salmon habitat. Um, yeah, it's a huge part of our economy. I think anyone who identifies as like a Washingtonian or Pacific Northwester, they think of like salmon. So it's, it serves a little bit of a different purpose. Um, so I can speak to some of the work that was done in Washington and it was actually done through levee removal. So they removed a levee and then let this old agriculture land kind of get inundated and go through its process of creating a tidal marsh. Um, but they had to go in and excavate like a starter channel is what they call it. And then they did do like a little bit of transplanting, but depending on like the budget, right? Things are gonna be a little bit different. Um, this particular site, they installed like a pump station, which I've also seen done here at a site on the Western Skelt, um, on the like Belgium Dutch border. So it just depends on like the purpose of the, the restoration goals is what it depends on, but yeah. So you're talking about tidal marshes and them kind of building themselves up, which sounds really cool because usually you would think something like that would erode. Why does it build itself up instead of just eroding away? Yeah, that's a good question. It's because you first get algae or something that like binds to the soils. And then because this weird algae is here and this area is intertidal, like it's inundated sometimes, but not all the time, right? It's the perfect place for these guys to first start. And then they start trapping sediments and then some kind of plant will blow a seed over there and that will establish. and because of the vegetation, because of like the way that the tide comes in and it goes out a little bit, it slows down the, um, the velocities enough so that sediments have a chance to settle out. And then the vegetation is there to actually hold it. Yeah, so it's a little different than like a fluvial system that just like keeps going. <laughs> and then maybe during like a low flow, you might get like some deposition. It's no, every single tidal cycle, which depending on where you are in the world, could be like six hours, 12 hours, um, maybe twice a day, it'll get this chance to deposit sediments. Okay, very cool. Yeah, it's a little different, yeah. What was it that sparked your curiosity to research these tidal marsh areas? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think a lot of it had to do with after I had finished my master's at UNM, I applied for a position to do like a, a year-long research stay with the US EPA in Seattle, Washington. And I was put under the National Estuary Program. 
And so, yeah, Section 320 of the Clean Water Act <laughs> establishes the National Estuary Program, so estuaries of significance, and the Puget Sound is one of those. And it basically creates like federal earmarked funds to restore these systems and preserve them for future generations. So that's kind of where I started to get interested in um, estuaries. And of course, at that time, I was focusing more on like rivers, the river part of the estuary, not so much the delta or the tides. But then um, during my time there, the National Estuary Program has like a sub program under it that gives out funding to the 20 or uh, to the 19, excuse me, um, Puget Sound tribes that are located along the estuary. And this funding is designated to help them implement and like restore systems to protect treaty rights. And so that's when I really started to get interested in like salmon recovery um, and restoration work along the sound. And they're through tribes going through their process with like the US courts to establish treaty rights. Um, they developed a tribal research consortia. So I don't know, maybe the equivalent of like a tribal consulting firm that only focuses on um, research related to treaty rights. And so that's kind of how I ended up doing this tidal marsh restoration work is that one of my mentors and committee members, uh, Gregory Hood, he works for Skagit River Systems Cooperative, which is this tribal-based research consortia. And there was a huge effort to kind of give back some of this agriculture land along the Skagit Bay. Because the Skagit is very, very productive for agriculture lands. It was, historically, it was all in Old Delta. So those um, soils are very fertile. But what we're seeing happen is a lot of salt intrusion. So as we look into the future, these areas are not suitable for agriculture. And that's kind of what has started this levy removal process kind of all along the sound, not just within Skagit Bay, to um, one, offset like some of the impacts of climate change because we understand these systems have a benefit for flood risk reduction. And then also two, to meet some national estuary program guidelines around fish habitat and restoration. So. It's kind of like my weird roundabout path of how I started in like fluvial systems as a, like a river modeler and then yeah I had to like spend time here in Delft to like build up these skills to shift to coastal systems. So was coming to Delft um, the reason why you applied for the Fulbright? It was. I yeah I never really saw myself living abroad and if I did I never thought it would be in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> It was funny because, yeah, my advisor, Mark, he was kind of like, really, you want to apply for to live in Europe? And I was like, yeah, like this is the place to study. You know, this is the place to really learn about like coastal modeling. And so, yeah, that was my primary motivation for applying was that I was trying to figure out Delft 3D on my own. Um, I was trying to figure out like, how do you justify setting boundary conditions? How do you model like these intertidal systems? Yeah. And the Netherlands has a lot of this infrastructure and development around being a coastal area, right? What's something that surprised or impressed you when you came here to the Netherlands about how they manage their water? I think it's definitely a different like pedagogy towards water management. So this area has a lot of history dating back to like the 40-year war, like Spanish, like colonization or, um, so I'm not sure if like you've seen at all during your time here in the Netherlands um, or going to different museums, but there's this concept that is like water as a weapon. I don't know if you've, yeah. So one of the things that they would do like during the 40-year war to like stop the Spanish from coming in and invading would be that they would breach dikes or levees um, to flood them out of villages. And that's just such an interesting concept to me because like, yeah, coming here from Washington state, I was like, oh, I can't imagine like, I think, yeah, our country's a lot younger obviously. And we haven't had like this internal fighting, but yeah, like breaching like a huge army corps or like Bureau of Recommendation dam, like, wow how interesting but then they've gone from that to 
um, creating these very complex like flood reduction systems, but it's still very much like water is something that needs to be managed and they engineer kind of their way out of risk or yeah, impact. Versus in like Washington state, especially along the coast, which this might not be like a fair comparison because we are like an estuary system versus this is like an open coastal system. Like, yes, we need to manage flood risk for like infrastructure, but it's more like part of your identity as like a Washingtonian is like you live along the sound. Like we live with water, we kayak and we take a lot of pride in like being located near this pristine like environment that like we've put a lot of resources and effort into protecting. And so we're like a little more naturally like in relationship with water, not just like, let's control it. Let's not trying to control it quite as much you feel. It's just something like you have to live with. And like, for example, this past December, there were like historic water levels from our king tides and huge parts of like the city of Seattle were flooded, which is horrible, of course. But it's kind of like, well, we, we live with flood versus here it's like every little thing to like control flood even as extreme as like the eastern scout carrying have you been to that huge storm barrier we went to two major storm barriers we went to the Ashflodike and we went to the Mislantrikirg storm surge barrier uh, okay so those are a lot smaller okay. <laughs> the yeah this one is it basically like split the scout and then the Atlantic, so that areas that were once like more saline salinity water became fresh water and it really changed like the ecosystem along. Yeah, the skelt. So that's not something that I think would ever get like a environmental impact <laughs> pass like in the States, like an approval, you know? Um, if you were going to have like that large of a change on the ecosystem where you literally change the water. Do you look a lot at the ecosystem when you've been doing your research? Um, no, I really focus on just like the modeling of it. There's amazing geomorphologists or ecologists who kind of focus on like the plants and all of that and, and salmon biologists, of course. But it's definitely something that's always in my mind as an engineer because I think sometimes we do get a little bogged down in like structures, right? Um, but in the end, like we are civil engineers, so it means we design for people, but also like it's important to remember the ecosystem as well, I think. I'm curious since you're from Washington, was there anything that surprised you when you came to New Mexico and hearing about water in New Mexico as you were doing all your studies? Because it's something that instead of having a lot of, we have very little. Yeah, that's a good contrast. <laughs> the similarities are like similar to like my region. A lot of the um, Pueblos are like very much involved in water management and things like that. Um, so that's one similarity. Some of the differences are obviously like the quantity of water, but I feel like if it wasn't for the silvery minnow, I don't know if there would be a ton of like conversations around like ecosystem services or ecosystem benefits, especially like in the middle Rio Grande um, in terms of like, we need to keep a certain amount of water in the rivers. So that's a little bit different Versus like in Washington state, if you mention anything about doing anything to rivers, people are like the salmon, like what's going to happen to the salmon? You know, no one's like, what's going to happen to the silvery minnow? They're just like, oh yeah, this, you know, listed endangered species we're supposed to take into account. Um, but I will say like in, in the Puget Sound region, like people are very environmentally conscious, I feel like, because of the salmon industry, but also like their identity and culture of, as like Pacific Northwesters. But I saw similar to that in New Mexico too. Like people are very conscious of like using water. Like for example, people will only water their like home gardens or things like that in the evenings to try to like conserve water. And then I think also 
there's a, I know there's like a lot of debate, especially at UNM, about like the purpose of the bosque and like how much water it uses. But I think that really uh, helps people, especially like within the city of Albuquerque, like identify, okay, like this is why having these, you know, environmental flows are important and having these like natural areas. So there's similarities in that way. Um, but yeah, they are very different. Yeah, but it both uh, comes down to fish. I find that interesting. You know, yeah, whether it's it salmon or silvery minnow, it's still, why do you need to do that? Fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you noticed anything about ecology or like thinking about ecology in terms of like what the Netherlands does? Like, are they thinking about ecology and salmon and that sort of thing? Or do they look at it differently? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, I just want to, like, preface everything with saying, like, I'm a visitor to this area, obviously. Like, I've only been here um, nine months, and I'm, I'm not Dutch. So um, these are just, like, my, my perspectives of what I think I understand. But, yeah, I, I, I feel like there's a, there's a large movement, right, with this um, nature-based solutions or, like, engineering with nature as we call it in the States, it's the same thing. Um, but yeah, there's this kind of idea that's taken over in engineering. So we realize like, okay, we kind of messed stuff up and we need to like do a little bit of remediation for it. I, I don't know if it's maybe just that, like in terms of the ideology and pedagogy to just like offset some of the bad things we did, or if it's like truly a cultural shift in society where we understand like not just, oh, these systems have value to us because they maybe make our structures last longer, but if it's actually like, okay, we actually need to care about maybe like our more than human relatives and make sure that they also have a chance to like survive during climate crises. Yeah, I, I can't tell, but I think it's a little bit more of like the first one. <laughs> when looking at how these places manage water, what are some major differences and similarities that you've noticed? Because I know you mentioned like the Netherlands is trying to usually keep out the water and you think Seattle's a little bit more perhaps um, they just know that flooding is definitely a danger, whereas the Netherlands is like, no, that's been a danger for a long time. We need to, like, come down and stop it from being a danger as much. What have you noticed are some differences and similarities between how, how they approach it and what systems they have in place? I don't know if I'm the best to ask about, like, the systems that are in place, but I can kind of mentioned about like the approaches. So I don't know how long you've been here. Two and a half weeks or so. Okay. Um, so you heard the alarms go off then on the first Monday of every month? Yes, yes. you did hear that. Yeah, so I think that's so interesting because um, especially for myself, right? We see these like beautiful canals. For example, we're sitting in between two canals right now. <laughs> and we think like, oh, like it's cute. Like, no, these are flood management systems. And every time like the first Monday of the month comes around, I hear this alarm and I know like, okay, it's just like the practice one. But every time it reminds me like, this is how close you are to like, having to deal with flood. Like, I think that's just like an interesting concept versus in Seattle, we don't, I mean, we have the tsunami warning system, of course. Um, but yeah, I think maybe it, it, unless you live in these communities that do get flooded, which do tend to be like lower income or POC communities, you're pretty um, isolated from it. So maybe you don't think about it as much versus here, like you could be in, you know, your office or at Albert Hein or commuting and you're going to hear this alarm. And for me, it was just so interesting because I remember like biking to, to you and I heard this alarm go off and I was like, oh, wow, like if this was like an actual flood right now, like I don't, I don't know like what I would do. Like I'm sure they learn about it in school and all over. Like it's yeah. just part of what they know. But coming in, you're like, oh, I don't know what that really means in terms of an action plan when I get a flood warning. Right. What about 
differences and similarities between these places and then New Mexico. Was there anything that you noticed in terms of how New Mexico approaches water or manages their water? So they have the here like the water board, the I'm not gonna say this right, but the Rijerstraat. <laughs> My Dutch is really bad. Um, and in New Mexico, they have that as well, right? Like the the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy, the MRGCD, yeah. So there's those similarities where like parts of um, the water board are made up of like each community or like district's representative. So it's kind of similar in that way. There's a lot more funding, I will say. They put, because, because of all of like the um, canals and levees and all this infrastructure that they have to maintain, you pay quite a bit of taxes. Um, even as someone who's just a visitor, like you pay taxes to maintain this infrastructure and it's a separate tax. It's not part of like your regular like income tax. It's a separate like yearly tax just for the water board stuff. Yeah, it's called like your water tax. Um, and so maybe in that sense, because in New Mexico, I feel like there maybe isn't as much funding for like infrastructure or water management. So in that sense, it is quite different, yeah. Interesting. It's interesting that they have like a separate thing that's like literally, this is water tax. You are putting this money into your water infrastructure. And is that kind of like based on your income, you put in a certain amount of water tax or do you know how that works? Yeah, it is based on like income and it's also based on where you live. So like, for example, if you live in The Hague, like your water tax is cheaper for some reason than living in Delft. And I think maybe it has to do with like the flood canals and like infrastructure um but yeah so but the water tax like funds the rider straw obviously and like they don't just use it for building it's also like some of that money goes towards like research and development as well so it'll fund some of like the projects research projects at tu or deltaris so in that sense it it feels good too like okay i'm contributing to science and research and infrastructure yeah yeah. Very cool. So you've been in the Netherlands for nine months. Aside from water things or including water things, is there anything that you have noticed from living here where you go, why don't we have that back home in Albuquerque or in uh, Washington? Is there anything that you go, why isn't that a thing? <laughs> I will say biking. Biking is really nice here. Um, I think for walkers and tourists, they don't like it because they're confused that they think the bike lane is like a really smooth path for walking on. <laughs> um, and then they almost get hit and yeah. But it's really nice. I feel like it's very convenient, but also it incentivizes you because it is so safe. It's separate from the road. It incentivizes you to like not drive, um, not use fossil fuels. I think that's really nice. In Seattle, there's like one biking trail called like the Burke Gilman Trail. Um, but then like if you need to go farther than like University of Washington, you're going to end up like having to bike along the cars in Seattle. And that's scary <laughs> so that's one thing um i know seattle has some public transport and obviously the netherlands has quite a bit yeah. is there a major difference that you've noticed that makes the netherlands better or worse and is that something that you think could be implemented in other places yeah, the public transportation here is is nice. The trains and all of that. Um, the efficiency of having like an OV chip cart, you just tap and you don't have to like purchase tickets or really think about it too much. Um, yeah, there were like in in the fall and starting up till about like Christmas, there were a lot of strikes that happened here in the Netherlands. So trains weren't running or buses weren't running or trams weren't running. And I think in that moment, I really realized like, oh, wow, public transportation is really essential to people here in the Netherlands. Not many people own cars. Um, people rely on it for like daily commuting, which 
I mean, essentially would be useless in Albuquerque (laughs) if you had to use public transportation to get like to. Why would it be useless? Just because there's that. What is the one? The art bus. Yeah, there's that, and then maybe like you could catch one or two buses from like the Northeast Heights to like in town. But our current infrastructure doesn't really work for that, right? Yeah, and it would it would take like three hours to go like. 40 minutes down the road or something. Um, so yeah, there's that. In, in Seattle as well, like we have the light rail, which like gets you around um, north and south. But if you need to go like to some of the smaller neighborhoods kind of off the highway, it's, it's difficult. Like you need a car or be ready to spend like two hours commuting on a bus. Um, so yeah, I think that is, that's a good perspective but also like we have to think about scale too so like the Netherlands is the size of two counties in my state of Washington so like yeah there can be two counties with really good public transportation but in terms of being like we should have this in all of America you know maybe people in Montana don't want to take public transportation you know like um yeah I will say too one thing I appreciate is um they have these things called like the local markets, so like the farmers markets. Um, and I think I appreciate like being able to buy your food that way versus like in the States, it just kind of ends up in this like huge store and you're like, okay, like I'm at Safeway. Hope, hope these vegetables are from this month, you know? Um, so I think that's, that's nice too. But. Have you had to make any lifestyle changes being in the Netherlands versus when you're in America? So the Netherlands is very cute. I think that's like the perfect word, right? But everything's smaller. (laughs) So like your housing is going to be smaller. Um, So things like that. I think one of the things I really reflected on though during my time in the Netherlands was consumerism, like American consumerism. I just never had like a reference to like compare it to before but after being here in the Netherlands I was like whoa like I do consume in times when I don't need to um I I don't know if you've like been out and like to like take out places or whatever but they don't give you silverware like you're not gonna waste plastic on that you know you're gonna get maybe like a wood spork thing to eat your food with Um, They're not going to give you like 30 napkins at once. You'll get like two. (laughs) You can make it work with those two. Um, I think, I think, I don't know if I fully understand this yet or if I ever will. But there's, I think like the Dutch sense of community is more like we take care of us and if we do our part and look after ourselves and like don't become a burden like everything else will be okay Hmm. versus so it comes off as like this really harsh individualism and I don't know if it is necessarily that or if it's more of just like we have to like take care of our stuff in our corner and that's us doing our part for the rest of society um but in the states it's not like that right like it's well depending I guess on where you are but Yeah, it's a little bit more like communal. Um, People will try to like invite you out to stuff. Like Dutch folks, you really need to schedule in advance with them, (laughs) like significantly in advance, (laughs) like not two days before. Um, So that's something I had to adjust to a little bit. Uh, The form of communication, it's like a little bit more direct, which I think people have a hard time with because it seems like it's being harsh or rude, but it's like, no, these are my these are my needs. And so like, if you want to like interact with me, here's how to do it. Um, Yeah, everyone's significantly taller than me (laughs) here in the (laughs) Netherlands. So that's been a little bit of adjustment. Um, This is my first time living abroad. So of course that was an adjustment as well. And then being from the West Coast, the time change. So family is either like, going to sleep or just starting their day depending on like what time I call them here. You mentioned consumerism and one of the things that I've noticed here is that they have a lot of little corner stores like an Albert Hein on every corner you know and they don't have these 
huge super Walmarts or that sort of thing. Do you think that that makes a big effect on the consumerism thought or do you think it's more other factors or what do you think? Like you do see at Albert Hein on every corner. I think that has to do a lot with people bike though. So you don't want to like bike a ton of groceries from halfway across town. Um, But I think it originates from like the Protestant culture. So there's like this idea in Protestant religion that like you're not supposed to show off you have wealth. Like it's okay to have money. It's okay to have like wealth, but you're not supposed to show it off. And so I think that kind of maybe influences some of the consumerism here too. Like people aren't going to buy the newest iPhone just to show you they have the newest iPhone or yeah, the basic needs are met. The old canal houses, they're all like stacked right next to each other. So you can't, it doesn't even make sense to try to buy like a huge mansion here with like ton of land or whatever like not like the picket fence like the american way you know it's just like okay we have a canal house like we have the little things we need yeah they also don't have the space for huge mansions with acres and backyards right yeah the space isn't here that's part of it as well so yeah i've noticed everything here definitely feels a little smaller especially just like when you're looking at these houses that are just next to each other you know and it's like actually those are multiple apartments within those houses no backyards no they have canal spaces and a lot more parks it seems like Mm -hmm. yeah like more shared spaces so you mentioned also education is there any major differences that you've noticed between your education here in the Netherlands versus like New Mexico and Washington yeah (laughs) um I can only really speak to like the PhD part of it but one thing I've noticed is um so in the states right like if you're gonna get a PhD usually like you will be under, sometimes you'll be under a teaching assistantship. So you'll have to TA for a little bit and like your courses will get paid for or whatever and you'll get a small stipend. Most of the time though, like when you're applying to programs, they're recruiting you for like a research assistantship where you're getting paid to do research. So it's kind of like a job, but not really, right? Because you're a research assistant, but you're still a PhD student or a candidate or whatever. Here, they are very much more like employees. So some PhDs within the department that I'm in are funded by Deltaris, the consulting firm that I told you about. Um, And they are treated as employees. They don't take courses their first year, even if they already have a master's. I know a lot of people were like, well, if you already have a master's, I'm like, no, like in the States, even if you have a master's, you still have to take like a year of coursework. They don't take courses. Um, they do these like continuing education kind of workshop things that they have to have a certain amount of credits for, but it'll be like maybe four days, one week out of the year or something. Um, so yeah, they are expected to spend like a lot more time just showing up like nine to five working. And then they do like a go, no go meeting, which is like in UNM comparison is the equivalent of the um, qualifying exam. And then after that, they just publish their three papers and then they're done. And it's pretty standard, unless something really goes wrong, that you're gonna be done in four years, you know? Versus in the States, it's not really like that. Um, Your first year is kind of a wash for research to be honest, like you'll get a little bit done and you'll learn a little bit of methods, but you're taking courses full time. So most students in the States, I feel like take five years and it's normal. It's considered normal to take that amount of time. You're also not treated as much as an employee. So if you want to do things like apply for a Fulbright and spend a year abroad, like it's okay. You're not under like a tight contract with a company. Um, But like, Yeah, not to do like a comparison or anything, but there's some benefits to that, right? Like 
you get paid a little better maybe. And then also, you know, the status of your funding for the full four years. Sometimes like in the States, something can happen or a grant finishes and then your advisor has to find a new grant. Um, I don't, I don't know if one system is better or not. Cause I don't want to do those weird comparisons. I'm like, this country's better. Um, but it, it, it makes a difference, right? Like it, yeah, it makes a difference. So depending on the individual, maybe they just want to pick up as many skills as possible in like quick time and they want a clear end date or maybe you want a little bit more time to like explore and learn. Or maybe you want to do like what I did, which is kind of crazy to shift from like studying one type of water systems to shifting to coastal from fluvial systems. And yeah, being structured as a PhD in the States, it gave me that freedom versus here at TU, like when you sign the contracts, they already have like the project topic picked out for you. And so that would never like be a possibility. So yeah, I don't know, it's, it's give or take. So have you taken any courses here then or no? No, I, they record like all of their courses and then they're actually like, you can go watch old lectures. Yeah, so I've done a little bit of that, but the courses are really designed here for master's students. They're not, so you're not gonna see a PhD really sitting in a course uh, at TU. Um, but yeah, they have like their coastal engineering textbook that they wrote here at TU online, available for free to download. <laughs> yeah, little plug if anyone's interested. But um, yeah, so I never like took a full on course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I did like little cert certifications. So Deltaris will do like their coastal modeling course you can get certified in. And then they had like a morphology one um, or morphodynamics one that I took and then did the certification. So it was kind of course-like for two weeks. We met for like three hours. And Very cool. So what does the future hold for you? Are you going to continue looking at these coastal systems, especially like, are you going to go back to the Puget Sound area and continue looking at that more? Or what's your plan? Good question. Ask myself this question a lot. <laughs> So this was my third year, so I'm hoping to like wrap up the PhD here pretty quickly. I would love to stay within the Puget Sound region. I need to do my licensure process and I see myself having a PE license in Washington State, but I would like to continue to keep working in these intertidal systems and I would really like to do um, a postdoc as well, focusing on the Puget Sound area, looking at clam garden restoration instead of salt marshes, so. Tell me about a clam garden, what is that? Yeah, what is a clam garden? So it's like this um, traditional form of aquaculture that comes from that region. So originally like the Coast Salish people <clears throat> would create clam gardens. So they'd build this kind of artificial wall out of rock and then let sediments deposit in it or behind it over time with each tidal cycle. So similar to how the vegetation's kind of trapping the sediments in a salt marsh and building it up, you're getting the same effect through a rock wall. But as these like sediments build up and they're trapping plankton and algae and getting them a chance to like hang out in lower velocity waters, you start to get shellfish develop there over time. So it's kind of like a natural shellfish bed and it's created like the ideal conditions for them to thrive. So you get very, very high levels of harvest out of these, yeah, pretty like old systems that, this older, I guess, technology that was been used since time immemorial in the region. So it would be a similar type of like modeling work, probably would still use stealth 3D. Um, and then yeah, looking at like sediment deposition over time, yeah. Yeah, very cool. One of the things that I've seen um, coming to the Netherlands has been sometimes they use the simple systems instead of the high-tech systems and that works better. So our tour guide for the Miscellantrochuric storm surge barrier was telling us it's not actually that complicated of a technology, it's just how you're using it. And then also it's like, they bike everywhere. The bike is a much simpler technology than a car, you know? Yeah. And yet that's what they're using. And in many ways that works better for them. And so that's been 
an interesting thing that I've noticed is that it's like, oh, sometimes simpler is better. How did you find your professor to study with here for the Fulbright? Um, it was just through like mutual folks who knew each other. So like Mark did his sabbatical um, at TU or not TU in Delft and then did a little bit of work like with folks at TU, but also at IHE in Delft. Um, so he knew people here from the beginning anyway. And then he just kind of like emailed around and was like, hey, like I have a student interested in applying for this Fulbright. Are there like folks that want to host? Because you have to find like a host for your Fulbright. <clears throat> and then it ended up, I got matched with um, Jose Antolinas here at TU Delft. And he um, serves as my Fulbright mentor for like the machine learning kind of modeling stuff. But also he spent a lot of time traveling throughout his PhD to different universities to learn. And so I think that was maybe one of his reasons why he was like, okay, like, yeah, let's work together. So he spent a lot of time actually in Oregon State University in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think he just understands like the value um, of doing these types of exchanges, knowledge exchanges, and then building also like transatlantic partnerships and yeah, collaborations. So definitely. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that either you wish I had or anything else that you would like to comment on? No, I think, yeah, I think we covered a lot. Awesome. Thank you so much, Noelani. This has been wonderful to get the chance to talk to you about this. Yeah, thanks for letting me share my experience and share about my Fulbright year. New Mexico is an arid desert, and the Netherlands is wet and mostly below sea level. They appear to be completely opposite scenarios, yet the issues they deal with and how they take care of them have some remarkable similarities. Both places have major changes they have made to the land to reduce floods. In New Mexico, the Rio Grande Channel has been narrowed to half of its original width, and man-made interventions have reduced the floods that would otherwise support the native vegetation. In the Netherlands, there are massive dikes and storm surge barriers, some of which have changed the saline ecosystems into freshwater ecosystems. While the equilibrium of the system is different for both places, in both places it has been changed by multiple factors. The Rio Grande has one of the highest sediment loads in the world, which is affected by naturally high streamflow events and man alterations like dams and dredging. The Netherlands has man-made canals in almost every community to direct the water of various rivers for flood management and navigation. In spite of their differences, both places have to deal with drought. For New Mexico, it is an age-old problem of whether there will be enough water. For the Netherlands, it is a matter of having the right amount of water at the right time and in the right place. Humans have altered the environment in both places, and in both places, the communities that live there have been shaped by water. I am Jamie Ritchie, the host, editor, and producer of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening.